Chapter Thirty One of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Thirty One. John Fry's Errand. We kept up the dance very late that night, mother being in such wonderful spirits that she would not hear of our going to bed, while she glanced from young Squire Marwood, very deep in his talk with our Annie, to me and Ruth Huckaback, who were beginning to be very pleasant company. Alas, poor mother, so proud as she was, how little she dreamed that her good schemes already were hopelessly going awry. Being forced to be up before daylight next day, in order to begin right early, I would not go to my bedroom that night for fear of disturbing my mother, but determined to sleep in the tallet a while, that place being cool and airy, and refreshing with the smell of sweet hay. Moreover, after my dwelling in town, where I had felt like a horse on a lime-kiln, I could not for a length of time have enough of country life. The mooing of a calf was music, and the chuckle of a fowl was wit, and the snore of the horses was news to me. "'Walt, have thee own way, I reckon,' said Betty, being cross with sleepiness, for she had washed up everything. "'Slape in hog-pound if thee likes, Jan.' Letting her have the last word of it, as is the due of women, I stood in the court, and wondered a while at the glory of the harvest moon and the yellow world it shone upon. Then I saw, as sure as ever I was standing there in the shadow of the stable, I saw a short wide figure glide across the foot of the courtyard, between me and the six-barred gate. Instead of running after it, as I should have done, I began to consider who it could be, and what on earth was doing there, when all our people were in bed, and the reapers gone home, or to the linhay close against the wheat-field. Having made up my mind at last that it could be none of our people, though not a dog was barking, and also that it must have been either a girl or a woman, I ran down with all speed to learn what might be the meaning of it. But I came too late to learn, through my own hesitation, for this was the lower end of the courtyard, not the approach from the parish highway, but the end of the sledway, across the fields where the brook goes down to the Lynn stream, and where Squire Fagus had saved the old drake. And, of course, the dry channel of the brook, being scarcely any water now, afforded plenty of place to hide, leading also to a little coppice, beyond our cabbage garden, and so further on to the parish highway. I saw at once that it was vain to make any pursuit by moonlight, and resolving to hold my own counsel about it, though puzzled not a little, and to keep watch there another night, Back I returned to the tallet-ladder, and slept without leaving off till morning. Now many people may wish to know, as indeed I myself did very greatly, what had brought Master Huckaback over from Dulverton, at that time of year, when the clothing business was most active on account of harvest wages, and when the new wheat was beginning to sample from the early parts up the country, for he meddled as well in corn-dealing, and when we could not attend to him properly by reason of our occupation. And yet more surprising it seemed to me that he should have brought his granddaughter also, instead of the troop of dragoons, without which he had vowed he would never come here again. 
and how he had managed to enter the house together with his granddaughter, and be sitting quite at home in the parlour there, without any knowledge or even suspicion on my part. That last question was easily solved, for mother herself had admitted them by means of the little passage, during a chorus of the harvest song which might have drowned an earthquake. But as for his meaning and motive, and apparent neglect of his business, none but himself could interpret them, and as he did not see fit to do so, we could not be rude enough to inquire. He seemed in no hurry to take his departure, though his visit was so inconvenient to us, as himself indeed must have noticed, and presently Lizzie, who was the sharpest among us, said in my hearing that she believed he had purposely timed his visit, so that he might have liberty to pursue his own object, whatsoever it were, without interruption from us. Mother gazed hard upon Lizzie at this, having formed a very different opinion, but Annie and myself agreed that it was worth looking into. Now how could we look into it, without watching Uncle Reuben, whenever he went abroad, and trying to catch him in his speech, when he was taking his ease at night? for, in spite of all the disgust with which he had spoken of harvest wassailing, there was not a man coming into our kitchen who liked it better than he did, only in a quiet way, and without too many witnesses. Now to endeavour to get at the purpose of any guest, even a treacherous one, which we had no right to think Uncle Reuben, by means of observing him in his cups, is a thing which even the lowest of people would regard with abhorrence and to my mind it was not clear whether it would be fair play at all to follow a visitor even at a distance from home and clear of our premises, except for the purpose of fetching him back and giving him more to go on with. Nevertheless we could not but think, the times being wild and disjointed, that Uncle Ben was not using fairly the part of a guest in our house, to make long expeditions we knew not whither, and involve us in trouble we knew not what for his mode was directly after breakfast to pray to the Lord a little, which used not to be his practice, and then to go forth upon Dolly, the which was our Annie's pony, very quiet and respectful, with a bag of good victuals hung behind him, and two great cavalry pistols in front. And he always wore his meanest clothes, as if expecting to be robbed, or to disarm the temptation thereto and he never took his golden chronometer, neither his bag of money. So much the girls found out and told me, for I was never at home myself by day, and they very craftily spurred me on, having less noble ideas, perhaps, to hit upon Uncle Reuben's track, and follow, and see what became of him. For he never returned until dark or more, just in time to be in before us, who were coming home from the harvest and then Dolly always seemed very weary, and stained with a muck from beyond our parish. But I refused to follow him, not only for the loss of a day's work to myself, and at least half a day to the other men, but chiefly because I could not think that it would be upright and manly. It was all very well to creep warily into the valley of the dunes, and heed everything around me, both because they were public enemies, and also because I risked my life at every step I took there. But as to tracking a feeble old man, however subtle he might be, a guest, moreover, of our own, and a relative through my mother, 
"'Once and for all,' I said, "'it is below me, and I won't do it.' Thereupon the girls, knowing my way, ceased to torment me about it, but what was my astonishment the very next day to perceive that instead of fourteen reapers we were only thirteen left, directly our breakfast was done with, or mowers, rather, I should say, for we were gone into the barley now. "'Who has been and left his scythe?' I asked. "'And here's a tin cup never been handled.' "'Woy, didn't e now, Maester Jan?' said Bill Dads, looking at me queerly. "'As Jan Vry were gain of our brackvus. "'Oh, very well,' I answered. "'John knows what he is doing.' "'For John Fry was a kind of foreman now, "'and it would not do to say anything that might lessen his authority. "'However, I made up my mind to rope him, "'when I should catch him by myself, "'without peril to his dignity. "'But when I came home in the evening, "'late and almost weary, "'there was no Annie cooking my supper, "'nor Lizzie by the fire reading.' nor even little Ruth Huckaback, watching the shadows and pondering. Upon this I went to the girls' room, not in the very best of tempers, and there I found all three of them in the little place set apart for Annie, eagerly listening to John Fry, who was telling some great adventure. John had a great jug of ale beside him, and a horn well drained, and he clearly looked upon himself as a hero, and the maids seemed to be of the same opinion." "'Well done, John,' my sister was saying. "'Capitally done, John Fry. "'How very brave you have been, John. "'Now, quick, let us hear the rest of it.' "'What does all this nonsense mean?' I said, in a voice which frightened them, as I could see by the light of our own mutton-candles. "'John Fry, you be off to your wife at once, "'or you shall have what I owe you now, instead of to-morrow morning.' John made no answer, but scratched his head, and looked at the maidens to take his part. "'It is you that must be off, I think,' said Lizzie, looking straight at me with all the impudence in the world. "'What right have you to come in here to the young lady's room, without an invitation, even?' "'Very well, Miss Lizzie, I suppose mother has some right here.' And with that I was going away to fetch her, knowing that she always took my side, and never would allow the house to be turned upside down in that manner. But Annie caught hold of me by the arm, and little Ruth stood in the doorway, and Lizzie said, "'Don't be a fool, John. We know things of you, you know, a great deal more than you dream of.' Upon this I glanced at Annie to learn whether she had been telling, but her pure true face reassured me at once, and then she said very gently, "'Lizzie, you talk too fast, my child. No one knows anything of our John which he need to be ashamed of, and working as he, as he does from light to dusk, and earning the living of all of us, he is entitled to choose his own good time for going out and for coming in, without consulting a little girl five years younger than himself. Now, John, sit down, and you shall know all that we have done, though I doubt whether you will approve of it. Upon this I kissed Annie, and so did Ruth, and John Fry looked a deal more comfortable, but Lizzie only made a face at us. Then Annie began as follows. "'You must know, dear John, that we have been extremely curious, ever since Uncle Reuben came, to know what he was come for, especially at this time of year, when he is at his busiest. He never vouchsafed any explanation, neither gave any reason, true or false, 
which shows his entire ignorance of all feminine nature. If Ruth had known, and refused to tell us, we should have been much easier, because we must have got it out of Ruth before two or three days were over. But darling Ruth knew no more than we did, and indeed I must do her the justice to say that she has been quite as inquisitive. Well, we might have put up with it if it had not been for his taking Dolly, my own pet Dolly, away every morning, quite as if she belonged to him, and keeping her out until close upon dark, and then bringing her home in a frightful condition. And he even had the impudence, when I told him that Dolly was my pony, to say that we owed him a pony, ever since you took from him that little horse upon which you found him strapped so snugly, and he means to take Dolly to Dulverton with him, to run in his little cart. If there is law in the land he shall not. Surely, John, you will not let him. That I won't, said I, except upon the conditions which I offered him once before. If we owe him the pony, we owe him the straps. Sweet Annie laughed like a bell at this, and then she went on with her story. Well, John, we were perfectly miserable. You cannot understand it, of course, but I used to go every evening and hug poor Dolly and kiss her, and beg her to tell me where she had been, and what she had seen that day. But never having belonged to Balaam, darling Dolly was quite unsuccessful, though often she strove to tell me, with her ears down and both eyes rolling. Then I made John Fry tie her tail in a knot, with a piece of white ribbon, as if for adornment that I might trace her among the hills, at any rate for a mile or two. But Uncle Ben was too deep for that. He cut off the ribbon before he started, saying he would have no dunes after him. And then, in despair, I applied to you, knowing how quick of foot you are, and I got Ruth and Lizzie to help me, but you answered us very shortly, and a very poor supper you had that night, according to your deserts. But though we were dashed to the ground for a time, we were not wholly discomfited. Our determination to know all about it seemed to increase with the difficulty. And Uncle Ben's manner last night was so dry, when we tried to romp and to lead him out, that it was much worse than Jamaica ginger grated into a poor sprayed finger. So we sent him to bed at the earliest moment, and held a small council upon him. If you remember, you, John, having now taken to smoke, which is a hateful practice, had gone forth grumbling about your bad supper, and not taking it as a good lesson. "'Why, Annie!' I cried in amazement at this. "'I will never trust you again for a supper. I thought you were so sorry.' "'And so I was, dear, very sorry. But still we must do our duty. And when we came to consider it, Ruth was the cleverest of us all.' for she said that surely we must have some man we could trust about the farm to go on a little errand, and then I remembered that old John Fry would do anything for money. "'Not for money plays, miss,' said John Fry, taking a pull at the beer, "'but for the love of your sweet face.' "'To be sure, John, with the kings behind it. And so Lizzie ran for John at once, and we gave him full directions.' how he was to slip out of the barley in the confusion of the breakfast, so that none might miss him, and to run back to the black comb bottom, and there he would find the very same pony which Uncle Ben had been tied upon, and there is no faster upon the farm. And then, without waiting for any breakfast, unless he could eat it either running or trotting, 
he was to travel all up the black comb, by the track Uncle Reuben had taken, and up at the top to look forward carefully, and so to trace him without being seen. "'Ay, and rate well a doodin John cried with his mouth in the bullock's horn. "'Well, and what did you see, John?' I asked, with great anxiety, though I meant to have shown no interest. "'John was just at the very point of it,' Lizzie answered me sharply, "'when you chose to come in and stop him.' "'Then let him begin again,' said I. "'Things being gone so far, it is now my duty to know everything, "'for the sake of you girls and mother.' "'Hem!' cried Lizzie, in a nasty way, but I took no notice of her, for she was always bad to deal with. Therefore John Fry began again, being heartily glad to do so, that his story might get out of the tumble which all our talk had made in it. But as he could not tell a tale in the manner of my Lorna, although he told it very well for those who understood him, I will take it from his mouth altogether, and state in brief what happened." When John, upon his forest pony, which he had much ado to hold, its mouth being like a bucket, was come to the top of the long black comb, two miles or more from Plover's Barrows, and winding to the southward, he stopped his little nag short of the crest, and got off and looked ahead of him, from behind a tump of wortles. It was a long flat sweep of moorland over which he was gazing, with a few bogs here and there, and brushy places round them. Of course John Fry, from his shepherd life and reclaiming of strayed cattle, knew as well as need be where he was, and the spread of the hills before him, although it was beyond our beat, or rather I should say beside it. Not but what we might have grazed there had it been our pleasure, but that it was not worth our while, and scarcely worth Jasper Kebby's even all the land being cropped, as one might say, with desolation. And nearly all our knowledge of it sprang from the unaccountable tricks of cows who have young calves with them, at which time they have wild desire to get away from the sight of man, and keep calf and milk for one another, although it be in a barren land. At least our cows have gotten this trick, and I have heard other people complain of it. John Fry, as I said, knew the place well enough, but he liked it none the more for that, neither did any of our people, and indeed all the neighborhood of Tom's Hill and Larksboro, and most of all Black Barrow Down, lay under grave imputation of having been enchanted with a very evil spell. Moreover, it was known, though folk were loath to speak of it, even on a summer morning, that Squire Tom, who had been murdered there a century ago or more, had been seen by several shepherds, even in the middle day, walking with his severed head carried in his left hand, and his right arm lifted towards the sun. Therefore it was very bold in John, as I acknowledged, to venture across that moor alone, even with a fast pony under him, and some whisky by his side. And he would never have done so, of that I am quite certain either for the sake of Annie's sweet face, or of the golden guinea, which the three maidens had subscribed to reward his skill and valor. But the truth was that he could not resist his own great curiosity. For, carefully spying across the moor, from behind the tuft of wortles, at first he could discover nothing having life and motion, 
except three or four wild cattle roving in vain search for nourishment, and a diseased sheep banished hither, and some carrion crows keeping watch on her. But when John was taking his very last look, being only too glad to go home again and acknowledge himself baffled, he thought he saw a figure moving in the farthest distance upon Black Barrow Down, scarcely a thing to be sure of yet on account of the want of color. But as he watched, the figure passed between him and a naked cliff, and appeared to be a man on horseback, making his way very carefully, in fear of bogs and serpents. For all about there it is adder's ground, and large black serpents dwell in the marshes, and can swim as well as crawl. John knew that the man who was riding there could be none but Uncle Reuben, for none of the dunes ever passed that way, and the shepherds were afraid of it. And now it seemed an unkind place for an unarmed man to venture through, especially after an armed one who might not like to be spied upon, and must have some dark object in visiting such drear solitudes. Nevertheless John Fry so ached with unbearable curiosity to know what an old man, and a stranger, and a rich man, and a peaceable, could possibly be after in that mysterious manner. Moreover, John so throbbed with hope to find some wealthy secret, that come what would of it he resolved to go to the end of the matter. Therefore he only waited a while, for fear of being discovered, till Master Huckaback turned to the left and entered a little gully, whence he could not survey the moor. Then John remounted, and crossed the rough land and the stony places, and picked his way among the morasses as fast as ever he dared to go, until, in about half an hour, he drew nigh the entrance of the gully. And now it behoved him to be most wary, for Uncle Ben might have stopped in there, either to rest his horse, or having reached the end of his journey. And in either case John had little doubt that he himself would be pistoled, and nothing more ever heard of him. Therefore he made his pony come to the mouth of it sideways, and leaned over and peered in around the rocky corner, while the little horse cropped at the briars. But he soon perceived that the gully was empty, so far at least as its course was straight, and with that he hastened into it, though his heart was not working easily. When he had traced the winding hollow for half a mile or more, he saw that it forked, and one part led to the left up a steep red bank, and the other to the right, being narrow and slightly tending downwards. Some yellow sand lay here and there between the starving grasses, and this he examined narrowly for a trace of Master Huckaback. At last he saw that, beyond all doubt, the man he was pursuing had taken the course which led downhill, and down the hill he must follow him and this John did with deep misgivings, and a hearty wish that he had never started upon so perilous an errand. For now he knew not where he was, and scarcely dared to ask himself, having heard of a horrible hole, somewhere in this neighborhood, called the Wizard's Slough. Therefore John rode down the slope, with sorrow and great caution, and these grew more as he went onward, and his pony reared against him, being scared, although a native of the roughest moorland. And John had just made up his mind that God meant this for a warning, as the passage seemed darker and deeper, 
when suddenly he turned a corner and saw a scene which stopped him. For there was the wizard slough itself, as black as death and bubbling, with a few scant yellow reeds in a ring around it. Outside these, bright water-grass of the liveliest green was creeping, tempting any unwary foot to step and plunge and founder. And on the marge were blue campanula, sundew, and forget-me-not, such as no child could resist. On either side the hill fell back, and the ground was broken with tufts of rush and flag and mare's tail, and a few rough alder-trees overclogged with water and not a bird was seen or heard, neither rail nor water-hen, wagtail nor reed-warbler. Of this horrible quagmire, the worst upon all Exmoor, John had heard from his grandfather, and even from his mother, when they wanted to keep him quiet. But his father had feared to speak of it to him, being a man of piety, and up to the tricks of the evil one. This made John the more desirous to have a good look at it now only with his girths well up, to turn away and flee at speed if anything should happen. And now he proved how well it is to be wary and wide awake, even in lonesome places. For at the other side of the slough, and a few lanyards beyond it, where the ground was less noisome, he had observed a felled tree lying over a great hole in the earth, with staves of wood and slabs of stone and some yellow gravel around it but the flags of reeds around the morass partly screened it from his eyes, and he could not make out the meaning of it, except that it meant no good, and probably was witchcraft. Yet Dolly seemed not to be harmed by it, for there she was, as large as life, tied to a stump not far beyond, and flipping the flies away with her tail. While John was trembling within himself, lest Dolly should get scent of his pony, and neigh and reveal their presence, although she could not see them, suddenly to his great amazement something white arose out of the hole, under the brown trunk of the tree. Seeing this, his blood went back within him, yet he was not able to turn and flee, but rooted his face in among the loose stones, and kept his quivering shoulders back, and prayed to God to protect him. However, the white thing itself was not so very awful, being nothing more than a long-coned nightcap with a tassel on the top, such as criminals wear at hanging time. But when John saw a man's face under it, and a man's neck and shoulders slowly rising out of the pit, he could not doubt that this was the place where the murderers come to life again, according to the Exmoor story. He knew that a man had been hanged last week, and that this was the ninth day after it. Therefore he could bear no more, thoroughly brave as he had been, neither did he wait to see what became of the gallows man, but climbed on his horse with what speed he might, and rode away at full gallop. Neither did he dare go back by the way he came, fearing to face Black Barrow down. Therefore he struck up the other track, leading away towards Cloven Rocks, and after riding hard for an hour and drinking all his whiskey, he luckily fell in with a shepherd, who led him on to a public-house somewhere near Exiford. And here he was so unmanned, the excitement being over, that nothing less than a gallon of ale and half a gammon of bacon brought him to his right mind again. 
and he took good care to be home before dark, having followed a well-known sheep-track. When John Fry finished his story at last, after many exclamations from Annie and from Lizzie, and much praise of his gallantry, yet some little disappointment that he had not stayed there a little longer while he was about it, so as to be able to tell us more, I said to him very sternly, "'Now, John, you have dreamed half this, my man. I firmly believe that you fell asleep at the top of the black comb, after drinking all your whiskey, and never went on to the moor at all. You know what a liar you are, John.' The girls were exceedingly angry at this, and laid their hands before my mouth, but I waited for John to answer, with my eyes fixed upon him steadfastly. "'Bain't for me to deny,' said John, looking at me very honestly. "'But what a mate tell a lie now in a whiles, same as other men doth, "'and most of all them as spacks again it. "'But this here be no lie, Maister Jan. "'I wish to God it war, boy. "'I might slap this nate the better.' "'I believe you speak the truth, John, and I ask your pardon. "'Now, not a word to any one about this strange affair.' There is mischief brewing, I can see, and it is my place to attend to it. Several things come across me now, only I will not tell you. They were not at all contented with this, but I would give them no better, except to say, when they plagued me greatly, and vowed to sleep at my door all night. Now, my dears, this is foolish of you. Too much of this matter is known already. It is for your own dear sakes that I am bound to be cautious. I have an opinion of my own, but it may be a very wrong one. I will not ask you to share it with me, neither will I make you inquisitive. Annie pouted and Lizzie frowned, and Ruth looked at me with her eyes wide open, but no other mark of regarding me. And I saw that if any one of the three, for John Fry was gone home with the trembles, could be trusted to keep a secret, that one was Ruth Huckaback. End of chapter 31 Recording by Michelle Harris